Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and you may have noticed something a little different around here. Today, I'm joined by Nadwa Dasri. Nadwa is a Yemeni conflict practitioner and a non-resident fellow at the Middle East Institute. She's someone with 20 years of fieldwork and research experience in Yemen, which has allowed her to do a whole host of wonderful and really important bits of, of work and writing on, on a range of different aspects pertaining to, to Yemen and more recently the, the conflict. She's got a wonderful recent article on the, the problematic nature of the ending the Yemen war narrative. And I encourage you all to, to have a read of that if you've not already done so. But there's a lot for us to talk about today. So without further ado, Nadwa, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Simon. Uh, glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. I've been really, really looking forward to to discussing this um, with you and recording this for, for a long time now. So I'm really pleased that we could find time to do it. So I, I begin, as, as always, with a question just about you, if that's okay, please. And I wonder, what was it that, that prompted your interest in, in doing what you do in this work on development and, and politics and, and Yemen um, more broadly? I guess as a Yemeni, that bit's obvious, but about the others, what, what drew you into this line of work? Yes, I, I am a Yemeni uh, woman. I grew up in a small village south of Ta'a city in Yemen. Um, I grew up, uh, I, I lived all my life in Yemen. I did almost all my education there. I grew up seeing and living and experiencing the, um, the impact of marginalization and corruption uh, of the central government on rural communities and on most Yemen, particularly the city where I come from, Ta'a's. And so I felt that I have to do something about that. And that's what drove me to the development sector um, early on in my career. I, in 2005, I started working with Yemeni tribes in Yemen, looking at tribal conflicts and the impact of, um, of that on the impact of poor governance and corruption on tribal conflicts and the impact of tribal conflicts on development. And um, I have become specialized in Yemeni tribes and that has been my passion. Um, in 2011, when the Arab Spring happened, I, Yemen became more internationalized in that more regional and international actors became directly involved in Yemen. And that had its negative impacts. And so I, that's when I started writing and publishing and engaging more in advocacy here in the West um, with the purpose of trying to educate the Western policymakers on their interventions in Yemen and how that impacts the country and how it could be done more effectively. Sure. Okay. So lots of, of important moments and, and possible alternative trajectories in that, that time period. I wonder if I can just press you on the, the legacy of marginalization that prompted you to go down this path. Um, you talked about the, the central government's attitudes and policies towards rural areas. Can you give us an example, perhaps, please? Well, so the city, well, the, the place where I grew up, people 
lived on the minimum. Uh, most of the men were migrants in Saudi Arabia or, you know, some cities sending money to their families. Um, a lot of people were just farmers living on the minimum. You go to the cities and you see that the senior officials in the government and the military have... Um, you know, such wealth that they've drawn from stealing public funds and resources. Mm. Um, and so I, I grew up with that feeling, but also as I grew older and became more educated, I understood how that works and how the marginaliz marginalization is so institutionalized, um, uh, you know, in the country. Yeah. And, and, and that's what drove me to, I guess, become more active um, you know, trying to change that. Mm -hmm. I guess that the obvious question is, with that passion to facilitate change and improve the, the situation, why not politics itself? I'm not a good politician. <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> I mean, if you follow me on Twitter, <laughs> I am a straight shooter. I'm not diplomatic. Um, I, I tend to be a little too direct in my uh, <laughs> comments and diplomacy and politics require a level of, I don't want to say lying, but a level of concealing um, and kind of tolerating certain things, which I'm not very good at. So, and, and people tell me that all the time, you need to be an ambassador. I am not, I will not be a good ambassador um, because I'm just, <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I'm not tolerant of, um, you know, when I see things that I think will not impact, will not impact my country in a good way, or you know, yeah. worse, will impact my country in a in a in a bad way, I I tend to just you know say blunt things. <laughs> sure. Well, that is maybe a good reason yeah. not to go into politics, but perhaps an even better reason to go into politics in order to affect change. But um, that's maybe a, a different discussion. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not that brave. Let me just say that. I'm just uh, not that brave. Fair enough. Yeah. Well, I, I think maybe those of you that fo those of us who follow on follow you on Twitter might might disagree about your level of bravery, given your your forthright views on important matters. But moving away from that, Nadwa, I must ask for people. People who, who don't necessarily know Yemeni politics um, particularly well, what's the relationship between these processes of, of marginalization and tribes? There, there'd be people, I guess, asking questions about in all of this, why would you focus on, on tribal groups when there's perhaps more socioeconomic or environmental um, governance questions that are more direct, yes. perhaps? Yeah, I actually... When I started working with the tribes, I, um, I took a job with the National Democratic Institute and they asked me to run the tribal conflict program. And I'm, in, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because back then, so I come from an, so I, I come from a rural village, but the, the, the governorate where I come from, Taiz, is largely urban. It's not tribal. Uh, it's, it's, it's beyond tribal, okay? Uh, so, or post-tribal, let me say. Right. So I, like many urban Yemenis, um, non-tribal Yemenis, we had a lot of negative perceptions of the tribes. Um, we grew up 
and even schools, you know, reading that the tribes are basically the sum of all evil, that they've hijacked the state, that they are anti, that they are anti-state, and they don't like the rule of law, that they're violent, and that they're basically a big source of the problem in Yemen. Um, so I went into this with that perception, and little did I know. So when I started working with the tribes, I realized that actually it's quite the opposite. And I understand, you know, some tribal leaders ha- were part of the patronage network that the Saleh, former President Saleh created, which, you know, he used that to rule the country and to stay in power um, um, and to kind of develop this power structure that only served him and his family at the expense of the Yemeni people. And some tribal leaders were part of that. But when you go to the tribes in general, to the tribal communities, to a lot of tribal leaders also who are not part of the patronage network, um, they offer a lot of services to their people. So tribal areas, you see no government, no courts, no police, nothing. But the tribes offer conflict resolution. Uh, they offer services. They help each other. Uh, they're actually not violent. Tribal conflict resolution systems are very sophisticated and very... They've done a they've done a, a really um, a lot to kind of deter crime and hold criminals um, and violators of local customs accountable for their deeds. Um, so I you know I became fascinated with that and and the tribesmen as well tribal leaders that I interacted to extremely civilized even when they disagree with each other even. With, when they have conflict amongst themselves, including revenge killings, they, they've always been—they're—they're they're always very respectful of each other, um, and it, it's just fascinating. It was just fascinating for me to see that, and I just became really—I I became really fascinated, addicted, and I just wanted to learn more about that, um, and so. I mean, Yemen is 70% rural areas, and a lot of these people are, are tribal people. I, I, I was fascinated with the tribal with the tribes because I felt like they offer, they're responsible for not the chaos, not the, um, you know, not security problems, but rather they have, the, the tribal system have helped provide security, justice, and even counter extremist groups. And not many people know that, and not many people recognize that. And so I felt that's very important, and it's it's something that people need to know about Yemen, that there is something good in Yemen that you think it's bad, but it's it's actually good, and it's been doing good for the country, and it, it needs to be respected, and it needs to be capitalized on. Of course, yeah, and you've you've obviously written extensively on on the tribes, and uh, you've done some work as well with tribal groups and their relationship to to groups like Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula. So I'd urge people to to have a look at that as well. But without straying too far off off topic and sticking to this this line of discussion, that were, you you mentioned that there was this this sort of marginalization and stereotypical views of of tribal groups which results in this complex relationship with the state. I wonder, why is that historically? Why is there such a, a, a complex relationship? Is it purely down to the, the, the very way of life being at odds with a, a, 
I guess, a sedentarized, institutionalized state structure, or is it something different? I, I actually don't think the tribes had a complex relationship with the government. So okay. tribes were not any more marginalized than other areas in Yemen. Um, I mean, the problem in Yemen is that the central regime, the, the regime that controlled the central government and the resources and the decision making, basically were uh, a bunch of northern elite, including some tribal leaders, some prominent tribal leaders, and they have marginalized everyone else in the country, north, south, east, tribes, non-tribes, okay. rural, and even urban. Um, so that has been the problem. Having said that, the tribes have always had a sort of working relationship with central government. Um, there, there has always been some level of respect and some level of accommodation. The good thing about the tribal system is that it protected, unlike in urban areas and non-tribal areas, the tribal system had has protected its own people, its own members from government oppression. Okay. Because the, because the tribes had arms, they had, um, they had influence, they had control over their areas and the government has always avoided any escalation with the tribes. I'm talking about during Saleh, not yeah. during the Houthis. Yeah, sure. So, so, so the central government has always been or had always been you know, during Saleh and after Saleh. Um, cautious not to oppress tribes to the point of marginalize them, yes, you know, uh, don't provide services, yes, they did that. Sometimes even um, divide and rule among tribes, yes, uh, instigating tribal conflicts, but not oppression like in other areas. Okay. And the, the narratives then that you were talking about, the perceptions of, of the position of tribes within the state, was that... Was that coming from the center or is that is that something else? So I think that was coming from, honestly, I don't know where it came from, but I think it's academia and it's mostly Westerners um, who, you know, who have a Westerners and Yemeni urban elite who have a certain very narrow um, definition of what a state should be like. Yeah. So sure. it should be Western-like. It should be courts. It should be police. I mean, you hear people saying, "No, we should not work with the tribes." You know, they're, they're, they, we should abolish the tribal system altogether. But if you abolish the tribal system together, the country collapses because guess who is now providing security and justice in Yemen? The, the government collapsed six, seven years ago. It's the tribes. And everywhere you go in Yemen, except front lines, it's safe to travel. The crime level is really low, common crime. Yeah. And that's because there is that, you know, there is that, um, you know, uh, order that the tribes have been enforcing. And the other part is, why do we have to be just like any Western country? Why can't we embrace our, our you know, our unique uh, our uniqueness. The tribal system is not against building a state. It's not against state institutions. In fact, I, I've, you know, I was involved in a in a series of research. Um, uh, the first one was in 2006, and it covered over 400 tribal leaders from the tribal areas that are mostly impacted by tribal conflicts, um, and the vast majority of them, it was 90% plus, said that they 
the research indicate that um, 90% of the, of, the, of the respondents said there is a high demand for government institutions. There is a high demand for the police, high demand for the courts, because even though the tribes resolve conflicts, they are still, there's, they still face um, a lot of challenges trying to resolve conflicts, especially when it comes to like revenge killings. The tribes are limited in how they deal with, with, you know, with murder, uh, with homicide. Same thing with land disputes. They wanted the government to step in and, and take charge. And, and tribes do sometimes pay the ultimate price in, in attempting to, um, you know, maintain order and security and, and, you know, provide justice. So it's a burden on the tribes and they do want to see state institutions there. So why can't we embrace that and make it part of, you know, our own version of state? Why do we have to, you know import some Western model that not necessarily doesn't necessarily work for us. I think it doesn't work for us. I mean, look at where we are now. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's always been my philosophy. And I've always tried to, you know, to encourage people to see that, you know, aspect of human. Um, and it's still my, you know, it's still my passion to try to do that. It's a philosophy that I'm certainly sympathetic to and, the idea of a uh, of, of a barbarian model that is universally applicable uh, yeah. and ignores the the nuances and subtleties of local context seems somewhat um, anachronistic or problematic to me. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. So let's talk a little bit about the state then, Nadwa, if that's okay, because post um, post Arab uprisings and the the war that followed. The, the state has sort of been hollowed away by everything, as you say, leaving the tribes to, um, to well, regulate life in, in a manner of speaking. So can you tell us a little bit about the, the process of hollowing out the state, if, if that indeed is a phrase that you would, you would um, acknowledge? People want to look at the surface, but they don't want to look at the underlying you know, issues. So back in 2011, the underlying issue was that this, the, 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 the national elite, Saleh, and the people around him, including his former allies, were the people who have created such concentration of power and resources at the national level in the hands of a few elite at the expense of Yemenis. That's why poverty increased, security deteriorated, and people took to the streets, right? Yeah, so what sure. happened in 2011? came the international community, the, the Gulf countries, but also the UN was involved, the US was involved, Britain was involved, and they all were part of the what, what, what we call the Gulf Cooperation um, Council Initiative, the GCC Initiative, and that was the transition government that forced Saleh to step down. But what happened then, that initiative, and they were celebrating it as a big success story. But what happened was that Saleh was forced to step down, but he maintained control over most of the armed forces. Okay. Mm. He stayed in the country. And then a joint government, a coalition government, or whatever they call it, transition government was formed, 50% for Saleh party and 50% for his opponent's party. And his opponent's party, by the way, were his allies at some point, they're corrupt like him. They hijacked the youth uprising. And so it was a recycle of the corrupt political elite um, and international 
the international community celebrated that as a big success. And back then, I remember I wrote a piece, and I, I wrote it under a fake name because I, I was still not very brave to write under my name. And I said, the GCC initiative, is it a solution or a recipe for disaster? Now, it turns out that it, it became a recipe for disaster because what happened was that the government got caught in the power struggle between Saleh's party and the opposition coalition who now beca became ruling party. Um, and Saleh was very, there was an assassination attempt on his life, but also he was very bitter that he was forced to step down, that then he allied with the Houthis and the forces that are loyal to him were used to overthrow the transition government in 2014. Um, and, you know, as Yemenis, we saw something like that coming, not necessarily the Houthis, but we we realized that, we, we, we said that that was going to fail. We, we saw it coming. Um, but everybody dismissed us as cynics, you know. Um, and the pattern continues. It continues until today. Uh, it, People don't want to talk about the big elephant in the room. They they want the the quick success, you know, the glitter, um, but they're they're they don't want to face the realities. So tell us about those realities then, Nadwa. What is it exactly that? that you mean by this this ongoing elephant in the room and again i'm sure people who follow you yeah. on twitter will know what that is and i guess yeah. it in some ways relates to the piece that you recently published about the the narrative of the yep. ending the yemen war but for those who aren't entirely sure what what is it that you're getting at here please yeah, so the Houthis took over the capital in 2014 with the help of Saleh. Then they executed him in 2000, end of 2017. Um, and Houthis have expanded by force throughout the country. They were pushed out from the south, but they're still pre pretty much, uh, you know, they have the upper hand militarily in, in the north, and now they're threatening Ma'rib. Ma'rib is a tribal area used to host only 50,000 local tribesmen and women. Um, and over the course of the war, it grew into a city that now hosts um, almost 3 million Yemenis, including 1.5 uh, million IDPs, according to a humanitarian um, expert that I, I talked to who's involved in Yemen. Um, so since 2014, the UN... So, so-called the UN peace process that is supported uh, strongly by the, the the international community, by Britain, by the EU, by everybody, um, has been trying to strike a deal between the Houthis um, and also the Hadi government, which is supported, which is backed by the Saudi-led coalition, um, and they are called. They, so, there's the assumption is that if they agree to a power share everything else will fall into place. Yeah. But everything else is not going to fall into place because the conflict has become too complex and other actors are were already there, but others have emerged that are not necessarily in agreement with the Houthis, that are not in agreement with the Houthis or Hadi government. Some of them are rivals of both. And the current peace process basically does not even recognize they they does not recognize these actors. I mean, they do recognize them in you know when you talk to them in private sessions and everything, but the process excludes them. We're talking about you know the the Southern Transition Council, other Southern groups, the mm -hmm. forces loyal to 
uh, Tariq Saleh, who is Saleh's uh, nephew that are in the West Coast, all these forces, um, entire South, entire West of Yemen, they are outside the command of the Yemeni government. Uh, they operate outside of the Yemeni government chain of command, but they also are rivals of the Houthis. So all these actors are not factored in the current peace process. This is one thing, but the other part is, the most important part is that the, the UN is trying to keep, to, keeps trying to push for a, a, an agreement between the Houthis and Hadi government, and the Houthis simply are not interested. They don't have incentive to stop the war. They, they don't want to stop the war. Um, Houthis don't recognize the Yemeni government. They don't recognize other actors. They present themselves as the only legitimate actors, you know, um, in Yemen. And they believe that they have a right to control and rule all the country without any other person or any other group. Um, and they define the conflict as one between them and Saudi Arabia. Well, Saudi Arabia intervened in, in 2015 militarily to reinstate Hadi's government um, that the Houthis deposed the year before. But so for the Houthis, they want the Saudis to withdraw completely, the Emiratis to withdraw completely. And, you know, for them, they're free to do whatever they want inside Yemen. So now they want to take Marib tomorrow. They want to take um, Shabwa and Hadramaut. These are all oil-rich governorates. But a couple of, of days ago, a Houthi, senior Houthi leader said that they are completely, they will not allow secession of South Yemen to happen. So, yes, they want to go back and, and retake South Yemen uh, as well. Um, so... So the assumption is that Houthis will agree to a political settlement and then they will become part of some sort of like a govern, governing formula with where other actors also are involved, but they don't want that. And they have the upper hand militarily and they have weapons and they have failed to show any sign of commitment to a ceasefire. Um, so, so all these are not factored in. It's like... People are looking at people are looking just straight and not looking at what's happening on the side. They just want that agreement signed between the Houthis and Hadi government, and then they assume things will uh, will work themselves out. Um, yeah. So and and the thing is that we've we've tried that in 2018, the UN envoy, uh, I, you know had the Houthis and Hadi government to agree to a, a national ceasefire. Back then, a, the ceasefire stopped the government from taking the, the strategic seaport of Hodeida from the Houthis. Mm -hmm. So the assumption was that Houthis will de-escalate and then that will be one confidence-building measure that will lead to more talks and more compromise and eventually reaching out to a peace agreement. But that didn't happen. Guess what happened? And we warned against it then. We said, if you stop government forces from taking Hodeida, what's going to happen is that Houthis will take more territory. Um, and that's exactly what happened. So the Saudis, so the international community have, they have leverage on the Saudis and the Yemeni government. They forced them to accept ceasefire more than once. It doesn't have that leverage on the Houthis. So yeah. every time there was a ceasefire, the Saudis and the government de-escalated, Houthis escalated even further. 
So what happened after the Stockholm Agreement that was, um, you know, agreed upon in December 2018 was that Houthis repositioned uh, their forces from Hodeida and uh, moved east of Sana'a and they took large territory. Um, they took the governorate of Al-Jawf and they made a lot of, um, you know, military gain uh, east of Sana'a and now they're threatening Marib. And if they take Marib, one, that's going to be a huge humanitarian disaster. Um, so we prevented a humanitarian disaster in Haleda in exchange for another in Marib. And then they'll move to other governorates. And if, if they take Marib, there will be such military force that it will be impossible to, yeah. um, you know, to to come to any sort of agreement with them where Yemen is, you know, has peace. Yeah. I, I must just ask quickly, uh, I'm very conscious that we've been going on for a, for a long time now, but you talk about uh, the Houthis believing that they have a right, and I, I know what, well, I think I know what you're getting at there, but for people who don't, can you just um, just briefly tell us what you mean by that Houthi right, sure. or they believe that they have this right? Please. Sure. And, and, and I'm, I'm glad you asked that question because a lot of what you read about the Houthis in Western media and analysis is uh, is pretty misleading. I mean, Houthis have been uh, painted as victims, as, you know, Zaidi minority, as people who are aggrieved and, you know, they've revolted against government corruption and now they're perceived as anti-imperialists, anti-imperialist pragmatists, and that's just not true. Um, go back to Houthis, um, you know, uh, guiding principles, go back to their media, to their leaders, you know, uh, speeches, to their statements. This is a group that's driven, they have political amb- ambition, but they're driven by the desire to achieve absolute authority, absolute control, absolute power. And that's rooted in the religious belief. Um, and that's the belief that the descendants of the Prophet have a right to rule the Muslim Ummah, the Muslim people. Um, and their ambition is not limited to Yemen. Um, I mean, they stated they want to liberate Mecca and they want to liberate Jerusalem and uh, count on it. If they make, if they continue to um, acquire more military power, which thanks to Iran, they have acquired a lot of military power and, and you know, uh, and through Iran training and missile technology, um, count on it. They're not going to stop at Yemen borders. They're going to push north. Um, they thrive in war and they think they're on a holy war um, to fulfill some ancient prophecy that the descendants of the prophet will one day rule the entire Muslim world. And that's basically the part that's neglected in most analysis. A lot of Westerners, and unfortunately some Yemenis too, look at Houthis from pragmatic lens. You can't look at them from pragmatic lens. They're not pragmatic people. Mm-hmm. If they were pragmatic, they would have taken advantage of Biden's, you know, um, su- full support for an end of the war in Yemen. That that was the moment for the Houthis to, to seize, because if they de-escalated, 
sure thing Biden would have forced the Saudis to exit Yemen and Houthis would have been the winners because they do have the upper hand militarily in Yemen. But what they did was the exact opposite. They escalated. They escalated inside Yemen and they also escalated attacks cross-border, um, you know, into Saudi territory. So no pragmatic people act like that. Yeah. Um, in fact, I feel like Houthis actually don't want the war to end because um, they have gained so much power, power and sorry, so much power and resources during the war that they and the war also uh, that they don't want to give up. But also, if the war stops, then they're faced with the realities that they have to one be held accountable for what they did, but also to provide for the people they that are in in areas they control. And I don't think they are they're interested in serving people. Um, or taking that responsibility for that matter. Right. We've we've spent a lot of time talking about some incredibly challenging, complex issues. There's so many more questions that I could ask you about all of this, Nadwa, um, dating back decades, but also with regard to, to, to more contemporary events. But alas, we've taken up so much of your time and we may have to come back and do it another time. But a huge thank you for, for spending your time with us today. It's been really, really insightful, um, really, really informative, as I expected. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Simon. It was a pleasure. Uh, it was my pleasure. You can find Nadwa on Twitter at ndowsery. That's at ndowsery. You can also find her work published at yementribalvoices.org. Org. She's done a lot of stuff for the Middle East Institute and, and many other places. As always, a huge thank you to my guest and also to you for listening. Before you go, if I can ask you, as all podcasts do these days, to like us, to subscribe to us and to share us. You can find us on all good podcast platforms from Apple to Spotify and Acast and everything else. We're available. So please do give us a listen. Recommend us to your friends, to your family and anyone else with a passing interest in Middle East politics. It really does mean a lot to us. You can also sign up for our newsletter at the SEPAD website, which is www.sepad.org. I think that's all for now. So, as always, a huge thank you for listening. Until next time.